Last episode, we examined the events of the 20th of December, when Gacy spends the night at Amaranti's office, purportedly confessing to all of his crimes. We also learned that Amaranti had filed a petition for a TRO in federal court, seeking to have the court order an end to the surveillance on Gacy. This matter was set to be heard on the 22nd. What that did is it gave us a very clear understanding of what led to the decision by the higher-ups of the Displains police to plant the photo receipt into evidence and further to fabricate the smell in order to secure the warrant for the search that takes place on the 21st. It was a now-or-never situation for them in order to get Gacy off the streets once and for all. We also began looking at the precursor to what may or may not have happened with respect to Amaranti and Gacy during their lengthy conference, which led Gacy to spill his guts to Mike Albrecht and a room full of cops and lawyers after he's officially charged with the abduction and murder of Robert Peast. So what happens next has become increasingly difficult for me to understand as to why it happened. Specifically what happens next is that Gacy proceeds over the next 29 hours to give multiple confessions as to his activities over the last six years. We will examine these statements closely in order to determine if there are hints as to what possessed Gacy to talk. Remember, at this exact point in time, Gacy knows that he only confessed his crimes to his lawyer, which in theory is the same as having told no one. Now, when the first bones in the crawl space are discovered at around 10.30 p.m. on the 21st, that information is transmitted from the massive collective of cops gathered at Gacy's home back to the station, at which time Terry Sullivan authorizes the cops to charge Gacy with abducting and murdering Rob Peast. We have to assume that at this point in time, as he sits in the small, cold conference room, surrounded by the cops who have been pursuing him for 10 consecutive days, that he is both mentally and physically exhausted. Quite possibly at this point, he no longer feels the need to keep up the ruse that he's been so successfully pulling off for the last six years. But that still doesn't explain where in the hell is his attorney when the questioning of John Wayne Gacy begins. Welcome to Defense Diaries. I'm your host, Bob Mata, and this is episode 11, Loose Lips Sink Ships. If you recall, Sam Amaranti has not agreed to be interviewed for this podcast, so I will have to rely on the information contained within his book, Defending a Monster, by Skyhorse Publishing, in order to fill in the blanks in terms of his actions and whereabouts on the 21st, while his client sits in custody. Unfortunately, my father was not retained until after Gacy was arrested and after he'd given the five confessions, so he would be of little assistance at this juncture. 
Now, as to conversations that took place between my father and Sam after the fact, where I'm sure my father's inquiries of Amaranti on how in the hell he let his client talk will certainly take place. How he responds will be very interesting, but those conversations with my father will come in a later episode, and believe me, they will be very interesting, especially in light of the fact that I am now in the uncomfortable position of having to discuss the case in terms of the cops and the state having snuck one, a big one, by them at trial. Now, remember in episode eight, buried deep amongst all of the bombshell information we uncovered, what may have gotten lost in the shuffle was the fact that shortly after Gacy was taken into custody, that he had complained of chest pains and that the cops saw this as the perfect opportunity to have Gacy beholden to the hospital while they feverishly work on getting the complaint for warrant drafted and in front of the judge before Gacy is released from the hospital because that weed charge wasn't going to keep him in custody for very long. So on the 21st, Gacy leaves Amaranti's office and is being tailed by Albrecht and Hackmeister, both of which know that Gacy confessed. What if they came to that conclusion either by deduction, as Hackmeister said in episode 10, based on the reactions and responses of the two lawyers, Amaranti's statement that if he's getting away to shoot his tires out, or for the reason that I asked you to come to your own conclusion at the end of the last episode. We have definitely formed an opinion as to what occurred, but as we have no confirmation of this from either Albrecht or Hackmeister, we are not in a position, nor do we feel comfortable stating what at this point is supposition. The primary difference on how they come to know this at this juncture is a matter of volume, meaning the number of people they believe Gacy has killed. It's either between one and three, that being Peast, Zick, and Butkovich, or it's a whole hell of a lot more than that. Either way, they know he is a killer and Gacy will not be let out of their sight. So let's jump into the 21st and see what leads Gacy up to the point where he is in the police station confessing to his crimes. His first stop after leaving Amaranti's is the Shell gas station owned by John Lucas, which he goes to frequently. There he is seen passing something to one of the attendants, a guy named Lance Jacobson, who, if you recall, came in and had made a statement with John Lucas earlier in the week. Gacy is seen to have what appears to be an emotional conversation with both Jacobson and Lucas. Hackmeister pulls into the station and starts screaming at Gacy that he better slow the fuck down in areas with kids and pedestrians. Gacy looks wounded and he tells Hackmeister to quit yelling at him. He then jumps into his car and takes off to his house in Somerdale. All the while, Gacy is pumping 10 milligram pills of Valium into his mouth like he's eating popcorn while watching a movie and then heads to his buddy Ron Rohde's house the Christmas tree guy. There are more of what appear to be long goodbyes, replete with hugs and tears on the part of both men. Gacy leaves and tears away from the curb, driving like a lunatic until he arrives at David Cram's place. Upon arrival there, Gacy spots Mike Rossi unloading equipment and tools from his car into a PDM van, because Rossi is quitting PDM. Remember, before Gacy went to Amaranti's office on the 20th, he had spent a couple of hours at Rossi's grilling him about what he had said to the cops. That clearly was an unpleasant conversation. 
wherein I have no doubt Gacy was telling Rossi that if I go down, you're coming with me. Gacy doesn't say a word to Rossi as he walks right by him into Cram's apartment. After 10 minutes, Rossi relents and joins Gacy in Cram's house. Oh, to be a fly on the wall for that conversation. After an hour or so, Gacy comes out, followed by both Cram and Rossi. Gacy hands Cram the keys to the car, and Cram gets into the driver's seat. Rossi joins them, following behind in his own car. Cram proceeds to then drive Gacy to DeLeo's restaurant to meet Leroy Stevens, his other lawyer, presumably to talk about the huge TRO hearing that is taking place on the very next day. Now, this doesn't sit well with me, because if Gacy confessed to killing 30-plus people and Albrecht and Hackmeister are saying that both Stevens and Amaranti were acting like deer in headlights after Gacy tells them that he's killed the 33 people, why in the hell is Stevens meeting with him at all, from a safety perspective or from a legal perspective? When was this meeting scheduled? When Gacy left early in the morning? And for what purpose? Amaranti, of course, mentions this meeting in his book, but is eerily silent as to the purpose of it. Even if it was to try and convince Gacy to allow himself to be committed, why not mention that? Gacy leaves Stevens, and then they get in the rental and head north on Milwaukee Avenue. Now, at this point, Albrecht is convinced that it's Gacy's sole mission to visit his father's grave at Mary Hill Cemetery and kill himself. Mike passes this thought on to his superiors. There's a great concern that makes its way through the entire department, and that concern has very little to do with Gacy's well-being and much more to do with the fact that they didn't want Gacy escaping justice and further being exposed for the killer that he was. So at this point in time, the men following Gacy need direction from Kozenzak. Amaranti in his book states that Kozenzak gives orders to arrest Gacy if they have the opportunity. This is the opposite of what Albrecht told us in the last episode, which was that Kozenzak told them to stand by for a little bit because he needs to talk to Sullivan. Now, remember back at the station, Larry Finder and Kozenzak are frantically trying to prepare the complaint for warrant, which we know is not finished until 7 p.m. that night and presented to Judge Peters at his home at 7.30 p.m. Now, we are currently at noon, so that seven-hour gap in time in the eyes of the state's attorney leaves far too much time for Gacy to bond out on a bullshit traffic ticket or weed charge. So Kozenzak tells Mike to, quote, do what you gotta do, and that's it. I'm gonna go ahead and trust what the guy that was actually there says, as opposed to what Amaranti claims Kozenzak says in his book. So Mike and Dave make the call to bust Gacy on the weed because in their opinion, that was doing what they had to do. So Mike calls it in and requests backup, stating they're going to take Gacy down for the weed. So at 12.15 p.m. on the 21st, Gacy's car is surrounded by three unmarked cop cars and forced to the curb. The five cops that were located in those vehicles jump out, guns drawn, and direct Gacy to get out of his vehicle. Gacy exits the passenger seat without incident 
and he is instructed to go to the back of the car and assume the position, which he does. Bent over at the waist with his upper torso laying on the top of the trunk, Ron Robinson informs Gacy that he is under arrest. Gacy is cuffed and placed in the back of one of the unmarked squads to be transported back to the station to be processed. Cram met them someplace, and now Cram became Gacy's driver. While he was driving Gacy to the restaurant or whatever, this is when Gacy told him that he had killed all these people. Uh, and that he had told that to the attorney. And then when we got to the restaurant, uh, I, I had a, a conversation with Leroy Stevens, and, you know, uh, but certainly Leroy Stevens did not tell me that John had confessed to killing all these people. But uh, Cram told that to Bob, and then Bob got a hold of me and told me about it. Uh, Apparently, David Cram did not mention that or didn't have the opportunity to mention that to either Mike or to Dave. And then once we found out about it, we called for Wally to come back because John had been drinking, and this Cram told us that uh, Gacy's been drinking a lot. Now, where he was getting the, the giggle soup from, I have no idea. But he said that, yeah, he's been drinking, and he's He's popping pills. Well, we knew he had the prescription for Valium. So, uh, and the next place he wants to go is to the cemetery. Now, we had also, as we talked about earlier, he had gone over by Rody's house and he tried to borrow a gun from Rody because he, by now he knew the game was up and uh, he was gonna take as many of us out as he possibly could. Uh, he was not just going to submit to the arrest. So uh, Mike and Dave informed us that they had seen him deliver a small amount of marijuana to a gas station attendant in Park Ridge, and they had in turn confiscated that. You know, and the, the gas station attendant said, "Hey, man." I never asked him for this or anything like that. He just gave it to me, and uh, Dave and Mike told me, yeah, we know that, no, not a problem. They just took it, and so they informed us because of the way John was behaving, it would be best to arrest him for that, and not so much to for the charge of, of the marijuana, but getting him into protective custody where we could control what he was doing. You know, we could now prevent him from popping all these pills and everything else once he was in custody, and that's what we decided to do. Uh, uh, we asked for guidance from on that, and uh, uh, it, it, it is in the notes that Wally, uh, Wally authorized, and I, I don't know... Uh, I would imagine I had heard that uh, Wally contacted the station and he was the guidance he was giving was use your own discretion on this. And with that information, Wally authorized the arrest on the marijuana charge. And uh, we caught a light at uh, Oakton and Milwaukee Avenue in Niles. Uh, Bob pulled his car 
uh, he was riding, uh, there was somebody in the car with him, I don't recall who it was, and uh, they blocked him in at Oakton and uh, Oakton and Milwaukee. I was behind Gacy. I, I got out of my squad car, went up to uh, Gacy's car, opened up the uh, passenger door, had my gun out, uh, pulled John out of the car. We took him over, put him over the trunk where we then did a, uh, a search. A, uh, uh, we frisked him, put it that way, and I put my cuffs on him, and then uh, uh, he was transported by uh, Bob Schultz into the station, and uh, they were still working on the search warrant. And so the the guidance we got from Joe at the time was, uh, let's move very slowly on these charges. So, I mean, now a, a misdemeanor marijuana charge, you, you can take and crack that out in just about no time at all, but we just stretched everything out. After we had done all the processing on the three grams of marijuana charge, uh, then we decided, because he was carrying the Valium in a little pillbox, well, at the time, the state of Illinois had a, a law that Schedule II uh, medications had to be carried in the prescription bottle. So then we, we now arrested John for a felony of carrying a Schedule II drug in a non-script container. And a sideline to that was that law had been overturned, but of course we didn't have the new statutes yet. So uh, we, in all honesty, we were not aware that that law had been overturned. But uh, I guess apparently about six months prior to us doing it, that law had been overturned, but uh, the books that we, most of the books that we had were a year or two old. So. Uh, we were that far behind as far as getting the new statute. So, and that now being a felony, uh, it was now late afternoon, so we could hold him overnight now for a bond hearing to have a judge set the bond. And uh, it was during that time there were several things that, that were going on that uh, I'm going to say I, I have secondhand information on on it, but not firsthand. And one of them was that Mike was talking with John. He had given him his Miranda rights. John had signed the Miranda waiver, and he was freely talking to Mike. After 10 grueling days for the boys in blue, and for Gacy, for that matter, Gacy is finally under arrest. It's not exactly what they were hoping to arrest him for, but remember, at this point, it's a rigged game. The photo receipt is now in play, and both the cops and Terry Sullivan believe that they have enough to get the warrant to get back into the house, where Sullivan is confident that they will find what they need to keep Gacy in custody permanently. Consider, at this exact moment in time, all they really have on Gacy is the planted receipt and the cooked-up smell. What gives Sullivan this great confidence that they will find what they need in that house on the second warrant? Is it that Cram decides on this day of all days to rat on his friend, 
telling Schultz and Albrecht that Gacy confessed to his lawyer that he killed 33 people and possibly exposing himself to being arrested as an accomplice? And somehow, the smoking gun statement by Cram doesn't make it into the complaint for warrant? I ain't buying it. Or is it that Sam Amaranti, at the very least, tells Albrecht and Hackmeister to shoot his tires out if Gacy is potentially going to evade them? I'm going to have to go with the latter on this one, folks. That Cram statement not making it into the complaint is just too hard to overlook. But if it was another individual, say a lawyer, yeah, I can see very clearly why that statement wouldn't have made it in. You do not bite the hand that feeds you. Yeah, Sullivan was in the know at this point, and there's little doubt in our minds as to exactly why he's so confident. So Gacy's in custody of the Des Plaines Police Department, and according to Amaranti, despite being exhausted, he makes his way to the police station. He states that he goes in and raises hell about the BS pretextual weed bust and offers to bond his client out, and that Sullivan, in turn, gives him some line about faxing the prince to Springfield. You know how it goes. Amaranti demands a room to speak to Gacy, which he has given. Now, the next quotes come directly from pages 165 and 166 of Defending a Monster, published by Skyhorse Publishing in 2012. Quote, Keep your fucking mouth shut, John. They told you that you could remain silent, right? Well, that's exactly what you do. Remain silent. Sam, it's over, it's over. My life is over. I just want to get this shit over with. Get it all over with. Clear the air. You don't have any idea what you want. You're in no shape to be making decisions of any kind, let alone decisions that are going to affect the rest of your life. You just keep your mouth shut. You had an appointment with the shrink this morning. That's where you should be right now, not here. You need help, John. Now just take my advice and keep your mouth shut. You are not required to say a word, so don't. Got it? Gacy then said something that threw me. I was just about to find out how crazy my client really was. Wait, what? Whatever he's about to tell him is going to be crazier than I killed 33 people and buried most of them under my house? But Sam, I want to get out of here. You want me to fake a heart attack? I can do that. John, what the hell are you talking about? No, that's a simple answer. What's wrong with you? You cannot fake a heart attack. We have to get you into a facility, a hospital. You need help, John. You are not yourself and you're not making any sense. I have to do this my way, Sam. I know, I know that, 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 that you were just trying to help me, that you were on my side. I know that, but you have to believe me. I have to do this my own way. I shook my head slowly. I was concerned that if given the chance, he would try to commit suicide. He still had his belt and street clothes. And if a person were determined to do it, there was always a way to do yourself in. I didn't want him to be left alone. I sat in the other chair in the room and watched my client put his head down in his arms. I stared at him for a couple of very long minutes. John, just keep your mouth closed, I said. I'll try to get... I was going to tell him that I intended to get him some help, 
I never got the chance. John raised his head. His face was an odd mix of ashen gray and vein-popping purple. His eyes were vacant and fixed. It was as if I wasn't in the room. His eyelids began to flutter, much like they had on the previous night in my office, and his eyes rolled back in his head. All I could see was white where his eyes were supposed to be. Believe me, that is a frightening sight. His body began to shudder and shake as he flipped out of his chair and onto the floor. He lay there shaking, flopping around like a fish on a pier. I thought, 20 minutes ago he was talking about faking a heart attack, and now he's fucking having one? I jumped up and ran to the locked door and began pounding on it. Hey, Gacy's having some kind of seizure, I yelled. He's on the ground. Hey, open the door. Someone call an ambulance. Now, there's a couple of things that really bother me about this particular passage. First, Amaranti claims that he adamantly tells Gacy to remain silent. I mean, he really hammers home this point in his book. Yet, he doesn't assert those same rights on behalf of his client to the cops that are standing right outside the door. Nothing. Hmm. Secondly, and equally as disturbing, Amaranti claims that Gacy asks him if he should fake a heart attack. He claims he says absolutely not. Yet a couple of minutes later, when Gacy is flopping around on the floor, faking a heart attack, one of two things must be true. Either Amaranti actually thinks in what could be one of the most spectacular instances of coincidence that Gacy is in fact having a heart attack, despite what Gacy asked him only minutes ago. Or that Amaranti of course knew he was faking and failed to advise the cops that his client was fine and deciding not to advise the cops that Gacy was fine while being mindful not to violate privilege by telling him that Gacy just told him that he was going to fake a heart attack, but by merely saying that he's fine, he just needs some air and a cup of water. What in effect Amaranti does is he buys the police hours and hours to draft their complaint for warrant. So Amaranti chooses to take his own advice and remain silent about Gacy's malingering. And in fact, Gacy is taken to the hospital and remains there till about 10 p.m., giving the cops and ASAs time to draft the complaint, get it signed by the judge, search Gacy's home, and discover the bones. Amaranti in his book says, quote, I suppose it wasn't really a surprise to anybody, not to me or any of the investigation team, when we learned that Gacy was not really having a heart attack upon arrival at the hospital after a short examination by the hospital staff, who was clear that nothing physical was wrong with him, at least not anything life-threatening. Now, you might be asking yourselves, why the hell does he care about how long Gacy was in the hospital? Aside from, of course, giving the cops all the time that they needed to turn the weed bust into a murder bust. Well, I'm glad you asked. To explain why I care, I will read another short passage from Defending a Monster, which appears on page 168, which takes place right after Gacy is transported back to the police station 
and right after the first bones are discovered. So we'll say about 10.30 p.m. Quote, once Gacy was out of my presence, where's his lawyer? He began to start telling parts of his story to just about anyone that would listen. Frankly, his decision to do so pretty much sealed his fate. He began confessing to many members of the Delta unit. Where's his lawyer? Guys he considered to be his friends, explaining that he had told Stevens and me everything. His decision to do so pretty much sealed his fate. This reminds me of a little quote from a movie wherein the protagonist's best friend, Dirk, says to Hermit, with friends like you, who needs friends? Well said, Dirk. Well said. The first interrogation of Gacy lasts for about 45 minutes. Albrecht gets Gacy to sign a Miranda waiver, which is a document that indicates that the suspect has been read their rights, that they understand these rights, and that they are waiving these rights. These rights, of course, include the right to remain silent, as whatever is said can and will be used in court and the right to counsel to be present during questioning. Now, in Gacy's appellate brief, his appellate defender argued that Gacy had told Hackmeister on the 19th that if he was arrested, that they were to contact his attorney immediately. Now, whether that's a proper assertion of his right to counsel, wherein it would trigger Miranda, is questionable. But if Amaranti had asserted on behalf of his client while at the station, that is in stone. Yet, it didn't happen. Let's hear what Mike says that Gacy pukes up to the boys of Delta while his lawyer is nowhere to be found. Initially, after that, the arrest, the initial things that he talked about, pretty much all of that, that first week or two or whatever it was, even when he went down to county and whatever, all that information turned out to be pretty much on the money. Uh, and then he started embellishing it, the notoriety that he loved. And <clears throat> other things, I think, uh, because if there was, he, you know, he, he gave off these little, you know, insinuations, ah, there's probably more bodies, but, um, and I think that would just try to keep himself alive longer. That's all he wanted. He didn't give, because um, if there was, I think they would have come out uh, initially and um, but you know that's that's just my opinion and I, I really think that um, you know we'd have found out about it either initially or whatever because he just you know told about the crawl space made the big diagrams and then talked about the river um, and other interview room which was a this is in a secure area uh, which, where I had a phone in it and uh, we were talking with Gacy, and I, I brought up to him about, you know, when he was in prison, uh, his father died when he was in prison in Iowa, but they never told him about it. And that was right around the holidays, too. So I said, you know, John, we've got this uh, uh, family in displays, and you remember when you were in prison, your father died, and you never told you, they never told you about it, how that impacted you, how upset you were with it. I said, well, you know, we've got a family that's here in displays their kid and we'd like to you know get a closure to it and where the body is at and he doesn't say anything about it. and uh i said well where is it 
above ground, below ground, where is it? He says, well, neither. It's not above ground or below ground. What the hell is he talking about? So we were going to get into that, and um, we had talked to him, Schultz Espenson, but why change? You had uh, the crawl space, a great thing. You know, you could just put these bodies in your crawl space because obviously there were, knew there was going to be a lot of bodies on there by that time. And he said, because it's full. I didn't have any more room. Um, he didn't mention the river just yet. And it, here's where he really talked about uh, they killed themselves. You know, they put the rope around their neck and what they did. And, and some were dancers, you know, and this guy was really weird. And, um, and when he would talk about individual guys, victims of his, he would say, and then he put the rope around his neck. And he would always kind of close it with that and like the rest, or he would say something to that effect, like the rest. And he was such a matter of fact conversation. And, you know, after it was all over with, I think, oh, I wish I'd have got it. Because I was the one talking to him, you know, and those guys were, because, you know, it wasn't like your TV interrogation, you know, with the lights down on you and everything. And just, and, uh, I was just, I had a legal pad along legal pad with me and I was just taking notes and nobody else was taking notes and we're just kind of listening to this and I'm trying to write down and I'm sure the other guys listen to all this stuff and um, but he would talk about putting underwear in their 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 mouths and just so matter of fact uh, of and I think that kind of impaired me a little bit of trying to delve a little bit more because he was just coming out with this stuff without any prompting you know and uh once in a while, you have to, you know, get him a little bit. But for the most part, Gacy just started talking. But absolutely no remorse in any way. I mean, it was just always their fault. They they put the rope around their own neck. And he said that more than once. Um, and, you know, they were homosexuals, but he wasn't. He was bisexual. He wanted to make sure. He said that quite a few times, that he was not homosexual. Um, and um, just it kind of... Uh, I think it uh, was surprising to us, I guess, but I mean, because it's just such a matter of fact that he was talking about how he killed 27 people and put them in a crawl space. But he started the diagram and he started out very, he put a, a rectangle with an X on it. And he said that was the uh, the first one that he put concrete over, that was the one he knifed. And then he went around and he said, this was a double. And then there was four here and it was just around the whole thing. and it. As he got to the end, he kind of tensed up a little bit, started more scribbles, and then when he was done, he, he tensed up, uh, his fist tight, and leaned back a little bit more, and then it, he relaxed, and he looked at it and he says, oh, Jack must have drew this. So I said, no, he didn't. I grabbed it from him right away. And uh, so, um, and so if you done. look, they used that diagram at the trial, and they put an overlay where the bodies were actually found and over the diagram. And it was amazing how much right on the money that diagram was. One one of the first statements he made when we went from that one room to the other room in that security area, I brought him in that room and he says, you know what, Mike, he looked up and he says, I'm not going to spend a day in jail for this. And we kind of, he didn't get into it much, much, but I'm telling you, I'll never go to jail for this. So I'm sure he was thinking his insanity defense right away. That's what he was going to do. You know, uh, who can be sane if you kill 33 people?
Well, I think he was very sane. I think he was just taking care of John Gacy. He was evil. I mean, he wasn't nuts. He was just an evil man. Wow. That's damaging. So Amaranti shows up after the first statement has already been made. So sometime after 11.15 p.m., his location after Gacy is taken to the hospital is a mystery. The record states the cops didn't call Amaranti before the first interrogation. But the fact still remains that had Amaranti asserted his client's right to counsel at the time that he was with Gacy originally before he went to the hospital, no interrogation could have taken place. Or if it had, it would have most likely been suppressed because as soon as a suspect lawyers up, all conversations between the suspect and law enforcement must cease immediately. This was not the case for Gacy. I do not want this to come off like I'm sympathizing for Gacy because I'm not. However, I am pointing out that there were many, many things that happened that shouldn't have. And all of the things that did happen needed to happen in order for that planted receipt to stay a secret. If Amaranti had asserted Gacy's right to counsel, there would have been no statements made. And the insanity defense may very well not have been employed. Because despite the fact that Gacy had 27 bodies buried in his crawl space, they had no direct evidence that he had killed them or buried them. If the insanity defense is not in play, the injected receipt is discovered. taken on December 22nd at 5.15 p.m. That's after you were arraigned and after you had been in custody. At what time in the morning? 5.15 p.m. on December 22nd. That means you had been in custody 24, 29 hours already, okay, from noon on the 21st up until the time of this statement. Sam Amaranti was not here. Nobody else was there at the time of the statement either. It was after you were arraigned. Oh, this was on a Friday. And it was no. 29 hours after you had been in custody. You had no access to drugs or alcohol, and you made the statement to him, and you drew a map. Well, as I told you before, I don't even remember the first three days of being here. Report 
reporting officers then asked Casey if he could explain where the bodies were in the crawl space. He tried to describe it and was having a difficult time in telling us exactly where the bodies were buried and asked if he could draw us a diagram. All right, at any rate, you draw, draw a diagram. Then after that, you tensed up for about 30 seconds and made reference to Jack, saying that he must have drawn it. Do you remember this statement? No. It was... Uh, I don't remember giving him any statements without Sam being present. You know, when they when they came in, that you say that was taken to the 2900 hour. They came in with the understanding that they were going to take me to the cemetery to see my dad. It's not that I recall it. Because I had still asked, and they told me, you know, when they arrested me, I asked them I wanted to go see my dad, and they said, yeah, we'll, we'll take you later on. Because even on the morning when Sam was with me. No, I just wanted to go out there because I, I would get peace of mind and contentment out of it. Nothing more. Did you Not recall at that time that you had told Sam everything the night before? No. I, I knew I had Is talked to your Sam. Mind? Did you know what you what you had told the subject matter? No, when I left in the morning, when I left Sam that morning and I was I was sent towards the gas station, I knew I had a lot of things to do. But you didn't recall the contents or the subject no. matter of the conversation? No. But what was running through my mind is that, like I was running out of time, and I don't know why. You know, running out of time. Yeah, and because when I, now when I got home, when I got to my house, I took three Valiums. At noontime, I took three more Valiums. Okay? Uh, at the time, just before I went to the hospital, I took seven more Valiums. That's a total of 13 Valiums, 10 milligram Valiums. So I don't remember. I don't remember. I was in a, you know, a state of complete confusion. What do you want me to smoke a joint? I got a grass. You got grass? Yeah, right here. Jesus Christ. Don't tell me that kind of thing, will you? Come on. So after Gacy's first statement on the 21st, Amaranti and Stevens, who has also shown up at this point, way after the fact, then go into the room and speak with Gacy for about an hour. So this is about 1 a.m. At around 2 a.m., Amaranti walks out of the room and proceeds to tell the cops that Gacy will tell them where the bodies are, provided that he can speak to his sister first. Stevens and Amaranti then talk to Gacy for another hour and a half. And at 3.30 a.m., at which time Gacy is told that a squad car has been sent to pick up his sister, the second interrogation of Gacy begins. Present were Hackmeister, Bedeau, Albrecht, Schultz, and Robinson, as well as his lawyers, Amaranti and Stevens. Stevens at this point tells Gacy to quote, go ahead and tell them what you wanted to say, end quote. Gacy then proceeds to make multiple incriminating statements. The simple fact of the matter is, by encouraging and advising Gacy to confess, Amaranti and Stevens abandoned him in violation of his Sixth Amendment right to counsel. At the moment this took place, both Amaranti and Stevens had effectively joined forces with the state 
in collecting evidence against their own client. For the life of me, I have never heard of a defense attorney doing this to his own client. I can only think of one reason why. Amaranti and Stevens would have felt compelled to advise their client to confess. And that is so that whatever was or wasn't said to Albrecht and Hackmeister by Amaranti in his office the night before would become a distant memory. Because the cops, they just got the info from the horse's mouth. Now, if you're listening and saying, well, Bob, Gacy already made a statement. What difference does it make that his lawyers let him make another statement? The difference is this. If they had done what was in the best interest of their client, they would have shut down any further statement because at that point in time, they could have argued that Gacy's first statement must be suppressed because he had asserted his right to counsel on the 19th with Hackmeister. Now, as soon as Amaranti and Stevens fed their client to the wolves and let him continue to make statements, the ability to do that died on the vine. Join us in the next episode when we will begin to examine exactly what Gacy said in those ill-fated statements. To our Patreon defense team members, we want to let you know that we're a little slow on getting you the bonus content, but it's coming, and we promise it'll be worth the wait. In the meantime, we want to shout out a huge thanks to a few more of our team members, Erica Williams, Brandon Rigo, Rick Sanchez, Shannon Gamble, and Abby Hayes. Thank you guys for your support. We love you. And then to all the people that make this podcast work, my partner, Darren Wood, our musical maestros, Taras Horluski and Ryan Gack, and our man in all things graphic design, Alex Carver, and Ali Mata, who handles all the other business. And finally to you, our beloved listeners, who without you, I'd just be some old guy talking about an old case. See you next time. This podcast is sponsored by Podbean. Podbean is the easiest way to create your own podcast. We use Podbean to host Defense Diaries. Download the free Podbean podcast app to start, record, and publish your very own podcast in minutes. Podbean provides everything you need to run your podcast, and you can record and publish episodes directly from the app on your phone. Download the free Podbean app today. That's P-O-D-B-E-A-N. Check it out. Okay, we know where the body's at. We know exactly where the body's at.